0: Or maybe you stumbled across a letter, this happened to me before, a letter that was written from one person to another person, neither of which are me, yet I'm stumbling across this letter with some special insight into some people that was not made public to me. I don't know about you, but probably the best example for that for me is like the personal journal idea, right? And every time I I, I have that experience, it doesn't happen very often, but when I see the personal journal, my first thought is, ooh, I want to read that. I want to look into it. But then I'm like, well, no, that's immoral, I shouldn't do it, so I kind of back off of it, and I want to read it, but I'm like, I'm not going to read it, because it's not meant for me, right? And so I'm like, okay, I'm not going to do it, but then I'm like, but but they'll never know, right? And then I'm like, well, but that doesn't matter, okay? That's still immoral, just because they'll never find out doesn't mean I can do whatever I want, right? I hope we would agree. Just because you don't get caught doesn't mean that what you're doing isn't wrong, Right? If you've been watching the NFL recently and all the news going on with them, you know that just because you don't get caught initially, you will eventually get caught doing bad stuff, right? So then you're like, okay, well, I'm not going to read it. But then you're they're like, well, but what if they're like really depressed and they need my help? Or maybe they're suicidal and, and, and I can read it and help them, right? You're trying to like moralize it as if reading someone's personal stuff is a good thing to do. Like you're, you're really trying to help them when in reality, you're just being like super nosy, But what is it about something that somebody writes that was not intended for you that intrigues us? Why does someone else's personal journal interest us? Have you ever thought about that? Because it's as if like you have a relationship with somebody and like y'all have a specific relationship, but outside of your personal relationship, they have relationships with everyone else that's not you in their life. And, and when you look at this idea, it's like, maybe if I read their journal, I can kind of get a sneak peek into something very intimate that they don't want me to know, but, but it's really who they are. It's like you feel like you know somebody so much better when you read their deepest and personal thoughts. And I paint this idea this morning because as we read Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, turn there with me if you have your Bibles this morning, that's like essentially what we're doing. Okay? And while this is the Bible, it's God's inspired and perfect word, I think we often overlook the context in which these letters are written. When Paul writes something in the New Testament, it's usually a letter to somebody, right? It's this personal letter. It's not just something general, it's literally something deep and personal in Paul's heart that he is telling to a group of people that he loves. And when we read this letter this morning, I want you to realize that we get to look under the hood. And you get to see probably the greatest missionary, the greatest preacher in the world, one of the greatest followers of Christ ever, you get to see his heart for people. And so as you read this text this morning, I I want us to realize that this is a personal and intimate thing. Because before Paul begins talking about grace by faith and wives and husbands and, and raising children, he opens with this personal love. A personal prayer for these people in this church that he absolutely loves. And so stand with me this morning. We're going to read this together, Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. We're going to read this together, and we're going to see Paul's heart for his church, and ultimately, Paul's heart for these people. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. If you don't have it, it'll be up here on the screen for you. and power, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. May God bless his word. may be seated. Uh, Ephesians um, has some very well known and famous texts in scripture. Um, however, this is probably not one of them, just to be honest, right? Because this is more of like a personal greeting, or more of like an intimate word. And so this week, as I was kind of reading through it, um, I usually use commentaries in order to, um, I, I don't use commentaries too much outside of just to make sure that I'm not messing the text up or getting it wrong, right? And with this one, I felt honestly this week, I felt a little more insecure as I was preparing this message, because it's really just kind of Paul sharing his heart, and I didn't want to like kind of force a main idea or a theme that wasn't there. And so after I read it, I actually, um, I got like kind of what I really thought was the crux of what Paul was saying here in terms of his prayer for the church. I was like, I think the main part is the prayer of the church. And so I did what you have to do as a preacher, whenever you're not sure if you're really nailing a text, I went and read Charles Spurgeon, okay? And so I found out that really what I was thinking was what Spurgeon agreed with, so I think we're good this morning. Um, I was very excited and encouraged by that. But what Paul says this morning, and what I think is very intriguing, is he's talking about the eyes of the heart. He says that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And this is such an important concept because there are things that the physical eye sees, and then there are other things that the heart sees. And they're very different oftentimes, right? Like you can't see love with your eyes, I mean to some degree you can, but your heart is the thing that sees love in your life. Your eyes can see the things that are around you, it can see a person, it can see physical stuff, but it is your heart and it is your soul that sees hope and love and passion. And Paul is writing to this church saying, look, I want the eyes of your heart to be enlightened to three things, he says. I want you to really see these things because these are Christians, they're following Jesus, but he has a fear that maybe the eyes of their heart are not really open to the hope that is in Christ, to the inheritance that is in Christ, and to the power that is in Christ. When I was 10 years old, my family took a trip to see uh, Washington, D.C., and when I was growing up, I was a huge American history buff, right, like, history was my favorite subject, and so we went up to Washington, D.C., and one morning we got up, and it was the day in which we were going to see the White House, okay, And so when you're a a young kid and you like American history and you're into that kind of stuff, the White House is kind of like the pinnacle of whatever you can possibly see, right? It's like the most important house in the world, you know? I was pretty excited about it. And it's really white, so it's just really cool and it's kind of special. And we got up one morning and I was ready to see it and my head was hurting. It wasn't feeling well. I kind of felt a little sick. And so my aunt gave me two pills. And to this day, I don't know exactly what those two pills were. But needless to say, I didn't see much of the White House, okay? Because I went to it, and then I, I kind of thought we might have seen it. And then later, I was like, "Hey, so when are we seeing the White House?" They're like, "We went, and you were there. Um, you should remember it." And looking back on it, I kind of have this like fuzzy vision of like what it was like. And I remember this one specific room. But I literally walked through the White House like drugged out as a ten-year-old. So it was kind of really inappropriate. But you know, it's funny. In the same way, I, that's what sin does to us in our lives. Have you ever struggled with a sin and it taints the way you see the world? And we don't realize this because we think, well, if I can see it with my physical eyes, then I'm good. But what we don't realize is that the things that we struggle with hinder the things that we can see. And I think what Paul says here, as he, he basically says, hey, look, this is what I'm praying for the church. This is my prayer for you. He says, my prayer for you is that you will see the hope, the inheritance, and the power that is in Jesus. And look, that is my prayer for you this morning, that you will not just be people who follow commands, but that you will live hope-filled lives. That you will live lives, I've heard it said this way, I want to live like I know what I'm leaving. I want to live like I know where I'm going. And lastly, I want you to live powerful. I want you to live in empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we say this and we act like we know what that means, but in reality, our lives often don't demonstrate that we should be optimistic, hopeful people who know we've got a beautiful inheritance coming our way and living every day as a powerful, spirit-filled person in the name of Jesus Christ. So Paul opens with saying, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. He says, okay, the church in Ephesus, you love God, you love people, and I'm thankful for you. So my word to you this morning is, White Oak, you love God well, you love people, and I'm literally thankful for you. As your pastor, allow me to step down from the pastoral pulpit for a minute and say, personally, I love you. And I'm thankful for you. And I know that it's hard to follow Jesus a lot of times. I know it's hard. And I know it's a lot of dying to self. But I, as your pastor, am very thankful for you. I was thankful this weekend when I walked in. And there's like 300 people in this sanctuary for a concert. All the hard work that went into that. I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for the money that we've raised. I'm thankful for the guys that tore up the carpet that was mildewed in this place. Who risked probably getting sick to serve their church. I'm thankful for those of you who give money to make the ministry of this church possible. I'm thankful for you who pray for this church behind closed doors when nobody knows what you're doing. And I'm thankful for all the people in this church who work so hard to maintain the unity of this place. We have so much unity in this church. We have so much love. And it's because you all love one another. So I'm thankful for you. And then Paul says, Paul says, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So Paul begins to preface. He says, okay, this is what I want. I want you to see these things right here. And the first thing he says, that you may know the hope to which he has called you. What is hope? Hope is the awakening of an optimism that our sin destroyed. You see, there used to be a world in which there was no fear. There used to be a world in which there was no fear of death. There used to be a world where there there wasn't like a thought of when I wake up today, is it gonna be a good day or a bad day? But then sin entered the world. Adam and Eve walked away from God and we have been born into Adam, into this sinful world. We talked about this last week. But for those of us who come in Christ, we find that we are no longer in a world without hope. You see, I used to live with no hope. I used to have like no purpose in my life, no meaning. I I lived and I tried to act like I wouldn't die one day, but I knew I would. And so I just ignored all the tough questions of life. And then I was probably in high school when I began saying, why am I here? And I'm like, I can't ignore the big questions of life. Why am I here? I began to seek out and I found Jesus and I found hope. And my question to you this morning is, do you live a life filled with hope, with the hope of the gospel, that because Christ died for us, that we can be made new, that we can overcome the sins that we struggle with? Do we live lives of hope, or do we live lives of being depressed and sad, and are we always negative, and are we, do we complain a lot, and, and do we always look at the bad things? Are the eyes of your heart this morning open to the hope that is in Christ? I'll be honest with you, a few months uh, back after we got this building open, um, I got kind of burned out, to be honest with you, being a pastor. It was a lot of work, and I was kind of doing a lot of things that I'd never done before. Um, I was having a lot of fun. I was enjoying it. I was, you know, walking with the Lord, but um, I got kind of tired, and I began to realize in my own personal life that really kind of what I'd been losing was, was my hope because I was so excited and I thought, we can turn this church around in three months is all it's gonna take, you know? It's like, this is 60 years in the making, right? And we're gonna turn this ship in three months, right? And, and I re- began to realize that I kind of started losing hope. Not that things weren't going well, but like my expectations weren't being met. And I cannot explain it outside of the fact that maybe around the middle of summer, God just said, I'm gonna give you hope. And all of a sudden, I, I had this optimism, I had this excitement, I had this drive, I had this desire to take this city for Jesus, and it just kind of came out of nowhere. And I began to realize that when we started seeing more fruit and more baptisms, when I started actually believing that it was gonna happen. And I began to realize that as a Christian, there's no excuse for not living a hope-filled life, for not being optimistic, for not being happy, for not knowing that what God is gonna do is just around the corner, and it's gonna be Awesome. But the eyes of my heart were not open to the hope that was in Jesus. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. We're going to read a couple passages in Romans 8 in parallel with, Rome, with Ephesians 1 this morning. Um, and I do this so you can see that Paul is not just writing a random introduction to a letter. Like, this is really Paul's theology. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 15. I mean, starting in verse 18. I'm going to read it for us. 18 through 25. Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time For what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Hope is the assurance that God will never let you go. Paul says, I realize that in the present things aren't going well. But the reason why we logically endure suffering is because of the hope that is to come. And you see, this is why hope is uniquely Christian. Hope makes no sense in the worldview of atheism. If there is no God, if there's no one looking out for you, there is no hope. Hope makes no sense in the world of agnosticism, because in agnosticism, where they're not sure if God exists or not, that means that hope is uncertain at best, but most likely not. But the Christian life is that we walk through every day the good and the bad because of the ultimate good that is coming. Because in Christ, your death is a thing of the past. Because Christ already died that death. He took your death and you get his eternal life and joy and victory over sin. And White Oak, hope is important because like being this family thing is really tough. Being a part of any family is tough because people are selfish and sinful and they'll, they'll gossip about us and they won't love us the way we feel like we should be loved and we won't love them the way they should be loved. And if we don't have hope, we can't do this family thing because we're gonna let each other down. And following Jesus is tough because you can't act on every impulse. It's tough. But why do we suffer in the present, Paul says? Because of the hope that is to come. Because of the glory of Jesus that is coming. They didn't think he would come the first time, and he did. They don't think he's coming back, but he is. And so we open our eyes to hope. And then Paul says that your eyes will be opened to the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, we open our eyes to inheritance. And I'm gonna be honest with you, as I was reading this this week, I got very emotional because we talked last week about how like God's beauty is our inheritance. And then I read this and it sounded kind of different and I began studying it. And, and what Paul is saying here is that literally we are God's inheritance. Like, we are the gift that God gets. How beautiful is that, that God created us that we would be his gift? Like, God loves us and desires us and wants us, and we as the saints who are part of the family, we are his inheritance. He created us, he loved us, and when we glorify him, we become the inheritance that he is invested in. God is looking forward to being with us for eternity. God is looking forward to us worshiping him. We are literally his inheritance. God is looking forward to me and you. How amazing is that? God looks forward to loving us and to us loving him back. Like from the moment that you were born, God was waiting for that moment when you would turn. He was waiting with anticipation when you would turn from the world and turn to Christ that you would then be his inheritance that he would receive in that moment for eternity. we don't realize how special we are to God. I don't have kids yet, but I've been a child and I see a lot of you parenting your children. Y'all doing a great job by the way, nobody's perfect. (laughs) And House and I were talking the other day and we were talking about kids and I'm gonna be honest with you, we're kind of more cautious people in general. And so we're not naive to the reality that once we have kids, like like the other day we just went to like Agora, a coffee shop at 10 o'clock at night together on a Sunday night just because we wanted to, right? And I've heard that when you have kids, you can't do that. Like suppose it's a little bit different, right? Um, And we're kind of cautious about all the changes that come when you have kids and the responsibility and your whole life changes. Like I've heard your life changes this much when you get married and like this much with kids and I, I believe it. But to me, the most astounding thing about children is no matter how much work they are, I've never heard a parent say, I wish they weren't there. I wish I didn't have them. I, I wish I didn't have to go through all this. They just love these kids. Like how do you love an inconvenience so much? I was like, how do you do that? And I think it's just a, an image that God used to say, look, I know you sin all the time. I know you fall. I know you're so weak to follow me. I know you're horrible at sharing the gospel. I know you you sin all the time. I, I know, but I just love that you're there. Like it's like God's almost looking forward to you waking up in the morning, so He can walk with you. And then Paul says in Romans eight, turn back there with me. Romans eight, go to verse sixteen, right before what we just read. In Romans eight, Paul says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. We are God's inheritance and God is our inheritance. We must awaken our eyes to who we really are. It's like some kid that's like in this urban city who's, who's homeless and who's a beggar and who has no one looking out for him and he's in a dangerous place and he has no home and he has no food, he's a complete beggar. And then somebody walks up to him and says, don't you know that you're a child of the king of this place? And that's what salvation is like. We live this whole life thinking that we're meaningless and we're purposeless and nobody really loves us and no one will be there for us all the time. We're alone in this gigantic universe and there's nothing really to do. We feel guilty, like we're worthless. We can't even control our own actions. And then somebody in our life comes along, shares us the gospel and says, you're a child of the king. If you don't know it this morning, you are ultimately valuable to God. You're not just an organism. You're not just a, a piece of like a, a living thing in the universe. Like, like You are a child of the most high God. I'm not telling you to act better because you're saved by your works. We'll learn in Ephesians, that's not true. I'm telling you to act better because you're a child of the king. I have horrible eating etiquette. If you know me, I'm not a great eater, right? But I was raised a middle class, average guy, so that's okay. But if I was like the president's son, I would then feel compelled to change my horrible eating habits, right? Our hearts don't realize who we are. Children of the king don't have to be addicted to lust. We don't have to, to, to beg for pleasure from empty broken vessels. We don't have to go to those former sins anymore because we've got a, a feast waiting back for us at the castle in which we live. And Paul says that if you are literally the children of God, then you're the heir. And he says that specifically as if, like, you might realize you're a child, but then not really realize you're an heir. You're a child, yes, but that means you're an heir. That means every good thing that God has, we get. And then he closes with my absolute favorite part. I'm gonna be honest, I'm gonna, I'm gonna preach this morning, I hope you're ready for that. Go to verse 19 in Ephesians one. This is, my, this is the main thing this morning. Verse 19 it says, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. We talked last week about how we are in Christ. Meaning that if we have faith in him that, that literally We get everything he has. He did everything for us. We're in him, therefore we get everything he has. And we seem to understand that point. But do you realize that Christ is in you? That we are in Christ and Christ is in us. Are the eyes of your heart awakened to how powerful God can work through you in this life? You see, we are just as much empowered as we are forgiven. We always talk about forgiveness. We always talk about how God loves us. But do we talk about how empowered we are by the Holy Spirit? You were forgiven so you could be empowered. You weren't just forgiven to get back to a neutral state in your life. You were forgiven that God can give you his spirit, spirit and you can do wonderful things in this world. It's kind of like if a few months back when we were meeting in the gym, I was like, okay, this is what we're gonna do, white oak. Are you ready for this? This is what we're going to do. We're meeting in this gym, and it doesn't really fit kind of what we're doing. We've got this beautiful sanctuary, but it's sitting here and rotting, and nothing's been happening in it for two years. We're going to raise all this money. We're going to do all this work. We're going to fix it up. We're going to move back in here, but then we're going to keep meeting in the gym. We're going to fix it up, not so we can use it for weddings and, you know, Elvis concerts and, and, you know, concerts and, you know, church services. We're not going to fix it up for those purposes. We're just going to fix it up so that it doesn't just sit here with looking like it is. You would have thought I was crazy, and you wouldn't have given any money, and you wouldn't have showed up on the countless work days and given all the effort. You wouldn't have, you know, ripped off the the sheetrock off the walls. You wouldn't have done anything because there's no point in doing that because you're not going to use it. And when Paul says that the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, he's saying, awaken your heart to how powerful you are because the Spirit lives inside of you. You were forgiven so that you could do something. And the same way that faith opens grace, we talked about that a few weeks ago, faith also opens the power of God in our lives towards us who believe, Paul says, You see, when Christ died, the stone was really heavy, and the guards were really strong, and the Roman Empire was the most mighty empire to that date, and all the forces of evil were going against Jesus, but it wasn't powerful enough. God raised Jesus from the dead. And the same power Paul said that worked in Christ that put him as head of all things also is in every single one of us ordinary individuals, and we just think we're forgiven. I'm no longer guilty. There's no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ, and you know I I'm, I'm coming close to God because He loves me, and we just kind of hang out and talk and. You know, I pray and I'm real quiet. He speaks to me. And those are wonderful things. But if the spirit of the living God is really inside of you, you are powerful. You say, well, what is this power? You don't have to turn here, but I'm just going to read I'm going to go back to Romans chapter 1. You might have heard this verse before. Romans one sixteen: For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the... For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I love this because Paul equates the gospel to power. How does God take dead things and make them alive? Through the gospel. And literally, and I talk to people a lot, and I'm like, so so do you share the gospel? What's that like? And they're like, well, I don't really know everything, and you know, what if they ask me a question that I don't know the answer to, and I'm really kind of uncomfortable about it? The message of the gospel is the most powerful message this world has ever seen. The message of the gospel, that God created a world, but that we walked away from him, but that Christ came down to die for us, to make things new, and that if we believe in him, that we can go from being dead to becoming alive, is the most powerful message that has ever been proclaimed in the entire world. And just when you speak those words and they leave your mouth, there is power in them, they changed my life. They probably changed your life. This central message is so powerful, but we don't ever use it. We don't ever say it. And the mission of the church is simply to proclaim this message that Paul said is the power of God to save people. And, and here's the thing we don't get oftentimes. When we read Romans 1, like, like, it's a little bit funny because here is Paul, this, this missionary, this, this preacher guy who, um, you know, is writing to this really, really small church, okay? He's writing to this really, really, really small church in the midst of the Roman Empire, which is the greatest empire the world has ever seen, okay? So he writes this letter and he says, for it is the power of the gospel that saves people, And if the Romans had read that, like intercepted this letter, they're like, for it is the power of the gospel. You know, like the church was nothing. There's like maybe a few thousand people in the entire world, and you have the largest empire the world has ever seen in the Roman Empire that was just literally taken over the world one by one. And Paul is writing to them, it's the power of the gospel to save in the name of Jesus. And they're like, whatever. But where's the Roman Empire today? Three years later, even after the Roman Empire tried to kill all the Christians, 300 years later, Christianity overtook the Roman Empire. This message of the gospel went forth, and people believed, and God opened hearts, and he opened their hearts to the power, the hope, and the inheritance. And before you know it, the Roman Empire was no more, and Christianity today has over 2 billion adherents. Do we realize that this message that we carry is powerful? Are the eyes of our hearts awakened to the power that comes when we tell people that Christ loved you and died for you and he can make your dead self alive again? And Paul was writing to this church in Ephesus and they were nothing. They were this small little subsect of a few believers. I mean, they had no idea what would the world would be like today. And I love this country. I really do. But is it going to be around in 2,000 years from now? History would probably say no. But unless Christ returns, the gospel will still be changing lives. What a, I want us to awaken our hearts today to the hope that is in Christ, to the beautiful inheritance that we have coming. And it's my job as your pastor to let you know that you are powerful in Jesus. And maybe someone's in this room this, this morning, and you're like, I don't really like, know what this is about. Let me just close by sharing the gospel. Can I do that? The gospel is this that Romans 3.23 says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that that we're at odds with God because he's perfect and because we are imperfect, and that if we were to die today, our sin would separate us from God, but because God came down in the man of Jesus to, to die on the cross for us, that he came to die your death so that that death that is coming in your life, you will not have to die, and that if you believe in Jesus, you can have salvation and the power of God. You can be adopted into this family of God that is restoring the world in the name of Jesus. And you can be a part of something that will never fade away like every empire there's ever been. Open the eyes of your heart this morning, White Oak. See the power of God. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would awaken us this morning. God, I confess that the Christian life sometimes can seem so monotonous, so repetitive. And God, there's such a temptation to just get lulled away to sleep. But God, I ask that you would awaken us this morning. And God, we know that we need your spirit to do this in our lives, God, that that we don't have the power in ourselves, God. But I pray that that Paul said in Romans 8 and Ephesians 1, God, that we would awaken to who we really are, God. I pray that every person today would, would realize just how special they are and how mighty of a calling is on their lives, God. I pray if someone is just wandering through this life, just living day to day, that they would realize that they were created for so much more. God, I pray that you would give this church the ability to speak the gospel and to proclaim it in this community and in this world. God, our traditions, they won't last. Music style will not last. Our personalities and energy won't last, God. But your gospel message will be here by God's power a hundred years from now in this church when every one of us are long gone. God, awaken our hearts to what is important this morning. Give us hope. Show us the inheritance. And empower us with the message of the gospel in this world. ask all these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, We're going to sing a song as we close. Um, If you need to come to the altar and pray, it's open for you. Uh, If you need to learn more about Jesus or if you need prayer or you want to join this church, uh, I'll be at the front here to receive you. But stand with us as we sing together to close our time.